Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, this Superman Begins miniseries has been a real ass kicker. It's been a lot of fun, don't get me wrong, but man oh man, this thing required shitloads of reading and research and other stuff that I honestly hadn't originally expected. You see, when I first em embarked on this miniseries, I... I figured it was the sort of thing I could probably knock out in a week. You know, just record a little bit every day and probably have the entire series taken care of in only seven days. How wrong I was. How wrong, stupid, foolish, negligent, and naive I was. But, for as big a pain in my ass as this series has been it's also been lots of fun I've had an absolute ball doing all this research and reading all these comics yes even rereading Superman for all seasons wasn't too bad and then end of the day isn't that what it's all about just having fun Makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Okay. And welcome back to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, the podcast sensation that's sweeping the nation. I'm your host, guide, mentor, and all-around nice guy, Trentus Magnus. I talk about comics, movies, and television, even if, and maybe especially because, other people have already talked about them too. Because let's face it, I'll do it better than they have. So, yeah, right now, I'm going through a mini-series cleverly titled Superman Begins, which examines various Superman origin stories presented in comic book form. The main reason I selected comics is because, let's face it, lots of people have probably discussed the movies and TV shows already. But, with Man of Steel's release on Blu-ray, it... It just seemed like a good time to pay tribute to Superman's various incarnations and origin stories. So, here we are. This week, it's Superman Earth-1, Volume 1. Now, as I've said before, the basic idea behind the Earth-1 line of graphic novels is to make official what's long been the comic book industry's policy of living off trade paperbacks and catering to a wider retail market beyond the comic book dorks who collect single issues month in and month out. These stories exist outside of mainstream DC continuity so that 
the creative crew can be as creative as they want to be without the inconvenience of having to fit in with what previous creative crews have done. It'll be just lovely to see how this pans out in 10 years, uh, assuming the industry has that long. So the tone of the Earth One volumes up to this point are completely different from any other comic book published in the history of the industry in that they attempt to take a realistic approach to the material, which is a totally original idea for comics. Nobody has ever attempted to tell a comic book story set in a realistic world before. Not sure if any of you knew that, but I, of course, am on top of things as usual. So, Superman Earth-1 Volume 1 was the first in the series to be released, which I'm sure angered Batman fans everywhere to no end, because most of them still have penal envy over the fact that Superman was created a year earlier than Batman, and canonically is usually the first superhero to appear on the scene in the DC Universe. Now, this book was a dream come true for writer J. Michael Straczynski. Before it was released, though, a lot of Superman fans expected it to be a nightmare. But I'll deal with that in just a sec. For right now, I'll play some promos and come back later. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay. So what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper, especially the old ones. Whoa, those things. Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually read comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much, I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? 
You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. And I'm back now, beginning my discussion about Superman Earth One, Volume One. Writer, J. Michael Straczynski. Penciler, Shane Davis. Inker, Sandra Hope. Letterer, Rob Lee. Colorist, Barbara Chiardo. Editor, Eddie Berganza and Adam Schlagman. Clark Kent arrives on a train in Metropolis and rents a room at a hotel. The next morning, he tries out several jobs. Pro football player, major league baseball player, and positions in a scientific research company, and in financial services and media industries. Clark realizes he can do anything as each company wants to hire him. He calls his mother and tells her what's happened, to which she replies that she would be happy with his choice of occupation. His last job stop is at the Daily Planet newspaper, where he meets Perry White, James, Jim, Olson, and Lois Lane. However, upon hearing that the Daily Planet and the wider newspaper industry are in decline, Clark decides not to apply for the job, dumps his application, and flies into space. He thinks upon his history and how his adoptive parents, Martha and Jonathan Kent, told him how they found him while hiking through woodland. The Kent saw a spaceship fly past them and crash, creating a sonic boom in its wake. They checked the wreckage for survivors, found a baby boy, and left with the infant and a small fragment of the wreckage. Sometime later, the Kents decided to keep the child. Shortly after this, the U.S. government and military arrive at the crash site. The Kents kept a small fragment of debris from the ship and learned of its, and the child's, extraterrestrial origins. Back in the narrative present, Clark talks to his late father's grave and says he feels incapable of being a superhero, as he has already conformed to human society. Instead, he decides to begin a career and hopes that his father would accept that. The next day, and 20 years after it crashed, Major Sandra Lee, a soldier working at a U.S. military base on advanced technology, revisits the crashed spaceship, which has regenerated its damaged and lost parts. The scientists working there have found symbols inside the atomic structure of the ship. Clark discovers his apartment is on fire and quickly enters the building to recover the fragment of spacecraft and a red and blue outfit his mother made for him from the cloth he was wrapped in as an infant. Alone, Clark checks the fragment with his enhanced vision when he's hit with energy and becomes unconscious and falls from the sky. The fragment talks and connects itself back to the ship in order to download more information. Just then, an invading alien force arrives and attacks Earth's major cities. The military quickly mobilizes, but the alien attack ships defeat Earth's fighter jets. Jim and Lois are almost killed because Jim wants to take photographs of the invasion. Clark 
still unconscious, is given information he could not possibly remember. The last moments of his home world, the planet Krypton. Clark, born as Kal-El, is the son of Jor-El and Lara Lorvan, who waited until the last minute to dispatch him so that the shockwaves would hide his escape. The alien armada leader, Tyrell, reveals himself to the Earth, but does not reveal his identity and purpose. He issues an ultimatum. The Earth will be destroyed and millions will die if someone Tyrell has been looking for does not surrender to him. Major Lee and the scientist, scientists agree that the person for whom Tyrell is looking was in the crashed ship. Clark tries to attack the aliens without revealing himself, but Jim's photographs show a human-shaped red and blue blur. Clark goes for help at the research company that was, that was about to employ him, but he finds that it's corrupt. Tyrell notices Jim taking pictures and almost kills him until Clark, who can no longer stand by and watch, destroys a robot. Tyrell is now aware of Clark's presence on Earth and prepares to increase the ferocity of his attack. Clark looks at his outfit, remembering why there was no mask and his mother asking where he wants to hide for the rest of his life and his adoptive father coining the name Superman. Clark decides to wear the outfit and reveals himself to the world as Superman. Superman lands and starts destroying the alien robots and ships and Tyrell reveals himself. He proves to be Superman's physical match and says that Krypton's destruction was no accident, but was an assassination. Tyrell originates from the planet Daron. Krypton and Daron were bitter enemies that fought several wars, which ended when a Daronian war machine, designed to destroy Krypton's core, was provided by an unknown alien race. Although Krypton was destroyed, a scientist's son escaped in a mission with which Tyrell had been charged to find and kill the child was considered a failure. Tyrell proceeds to activate several war machines to destroy Earth and hits Superman with red solar energy beam that pins him down. Tyrell explains the nature of their powers and leaves to make final preparations. Because Superman is the cause of the invasion, no one in Metropolis wants to help. Lois and Jim get Superman out of the energy beam using a truck and Superman regains his strength and stands up. He and Tyrell fight again. This time, Superman gains the upper hand by burning Tyrell with his heat vision. Superman's ship becomes fully regenerated, takes off to find him, and knocks Tyrell from behind. Tyrell tells Superman that his own spacecraft is almost as impervious as Kryptonian metal, from which Superman's ship is made. Superman enters Tyrell's weakened spacecraft and destroys it from the inside. Tyrell tries to stop him but is defeated, and he warns Superman that others like him will come to finish the job. Superman jumps off Tyrell's ship. The invasion is over, and Superman smiles and flies away. At a government base, Major Lee wonders who Superman is and what he wants, and whether his presence means more trouble for, for Earth. The General puts her in charge of researching Superman and his origin and tells Lee to locate him. After his ordeal, Clark walks home. The boss of the research company finds him and offers him a job which Clark declines. A Deronian battleship crash lands in an indoor battlefield and Clark purchases some new clothing and formulates a Clark Kent disguise. He returns to the Daily Planet 
which is more enthusiastic and successful because of its coverage of the invasion, and Superman was superior to that of rival news media. Perry does not know what to call the new superhero until Clark suggests the name Superman. Clark is hired because of an interview he claims he conducted with Superman, and he bonds with his new colleagues. Public opinion of Superman is mixed. Some like him and see him as a hero. Others don't trust him because he was the cause of the invasion. In the Arctic, Superman has hidden his ship in a secret cave, and its sentience activates and tells him his mission. To survive. Use his powers well and wisely, and to avenge the murder of his homeworld. At the close of the story, Lois and Jim are on the Daily Planet rooftop discussing how Superman has changed the world. And Jim photographs Superman again. Okay, so... What do I think? Well... Call me cynical, but half the time, the controversy surrounding particular media is completely invented. And I think that's the case here. A lot of fans were scared shitless at the prospect of the much-hyped, quote, sexy post-Twilight Superman, unquote. It was absolutely fabricated. It was done specifically to get a rise out of the core fans and to get attention from the news media. Anything else you want to put on the other side of the argument is an absolute crock of shit. Now, you cut away all that stupidity. This is basically another story about an alien invasion that Superman has to turn back. Now, I'm not insulting JMS. I don't know, and I don't care what his involvement was with the book's marketing. We all do what we have to do to pay the bills, so I don't begrudge him whatever role he might have played in drumming up publicity for, for this book with that Twilight shit or anything else. Got nothing against him. This is a very modern and fairly realistic approach to Superman. JMS writes Clark as just a regular kid who has some amazing abilities. But... At the same time, he hasn't cracked the meaning of life. He has no more certainty about himself or his place in the world than anybody else. And because of that, he tries his hand at a lot of different careers. This was a matter of some controversy among fans when this book first came out. For some reason, I don't know. Because apparently Clark is supposed to come out of the fucking womb wanting to be a reporter for the Daily Planet. Now, as I've said before, there are three levels of interpretation. You've got tradition, which is the way things have often been done, but it's not set in stone. You've got canon, which is how things are usually done, but it could be malleable if done properly. And then finally, you've got mythos, which are all the non-negotiable unchangeable, immutable elements of Superman lore. Failure to recognize these never goes unpunished. And in this case, JMS took a royal dump all over tradition. He approached the situation in a pretty logical way. In fact, you know what? I'm going to let JMS speak for himself here, 
In an interview with Comic Book Resources, JMS was quoted as saying, The Superman part of the equation is, as noted in the other stories, really the story of Clark's coming out as Superman and his decision to essentially enter a life of service when he could have been anyone, could have been rich as an athlete, researcher, any number of things. I'm also taking time to really think through elements of the mythos that we've accepted without maybe really sitting back and saying, why? End quote. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I should come clean about something. Years ago, I dreamed up what I'd want to do with a Superman comic book if I was ever given a chance to do my version of Superman. This was maybe around the beginning of 2007 or so. Among other things, I had a sequence where Clark considered and even experimented with different career paths. My justification for it would be that the zillions of gifts Clark has at his disposal mean he can be successful at literally anything he chooses. My pitch was going to be that Clark uses Superman to directly and openly help other people in life-threatening situations. The rest of the time, he's Clark the journalist who writes exposés to help people in soul-crushing situations. I was going to use Clark's inherent sense of compassion combined with his self-imposed obligation to play fair to justify him choosing a career in journalism. He can use Superman to do the big theatrical stuff while Clark can work more for the betterment of everybody, I guess you could say in the trenches day to day. My ultimate point was going to be that Clark doesn't know how else to live his life other than to help people any way he can and in all ways that he can. Now, my Superman fan comic never got off the ground because ultimately, subsequent seasons of Smallville as well as goings-on and later comics tackled about 90% of what I wanted to do with my Superman, so felt pointless trying to make my Superman as a fan comic since it's already out there in different forms. Now, I've gone through this big, huge, lengthy diatribe to say when JMS showed Clark test driving those different careers, it rang true for me because I'd written something very similar to that myself. And for whatever reason, these scenes in Earth One seriously pissed off a lot of fans. Now, somehow this makes Superman greedy or something. But think about it for a minute. Clark can do anything. The world's his oyster. And he loves his mom and wants to take care of her. Think about that for a minute. The only way Clark can process greed is how it benefits someone else. He doesn't want the money for himself. He wants it so he can take care of his mom. That's the closest Superman can get to being greedy. How many of us would enter all of those careers at the same time just to get rich for our own purposes? Now true, Clark ultimately chooses to work at the Daily Planet for reasons other than using his civilian identity to continue working for the common good, but 
His reasons are no less valid. Clark can read the tea leaves. He knows print media are all dying. But he's attracted to the planet because of the people who work there and their dedication both to their craft and to the truth. Clark recognizes common ideals with the Daily Planet staff and ultimately that's what convinces him to pursue journalism. Speaking of shitting all over tradition, and we're moving on to a different subject now, the Superman symbol has no relation to Krypton here. Some versions out there show the symbol with a Kryptonian origin, and I don't mind that, except that it it just needs to be acknowledged this is not a long-standing part of Superman lore. That's something that Richard Donner invented for Superman the movie. Now, in its place, I don't mind that, but it bugs me when the symbol is shown with a connection to Krypton and people expect that almost as a matter of religious obligation, as if it has to be part of... It has to have a connection to Krypton. It's got to be the family crest. It's got to be... It's got to have some sort of a Kryptonian origin. And folks, that didn't enter the Superman lexicon until 1978. The convention prior to then was that Jonathan and or Clark designed the symbol. Like it or not, that's a completely valid way to handle the subject. Shit, it's probably more valid than any of the alternatives. What I'm saying here is that I liked this specifically because it fucked with hipster fans with no familiarity with the comics. Now, is all of this to say that Earth-1 is perfect? Not really. I'm a Jonathan Kent fanboy from way back. And so I'd have liked more flashbacks that included him. But JMS gave us enough to sustain the story and set up Jonathan as Clark's true moral architect. And that's what counts. Jonathan expected big things from Clark. It wasn't enough that Clark be happy with the life he chooses for himself. That's Martha's thing. Jonathan expected Clark to truly make a difference. Now, one could argue, and in fact people have argued, that Clark got dragged into becoming Superman, kicking and screaming in this story. But the other way to look at it is that it took an alien fucking invasion for him to realize that Jonathan Kent was right. If Clark's character arc in this book could be summarized in four words, those would probably be it. Jonathan Kent was right. And it's not that Clark doesn't want to be Superman like Jonathan expects him to. Clark simply understands that once he opens that door, he can never close it again. JMS wrote a Clark Kent who's very thoughtful and deliberate in his actions. He doesn't act impulsively. Whatever choices he makes are matters of true moral conviction on his part. Under the circumstances, I'd argue that JMS would have been cheating if he'd have written Clark in this way for most of the story, but had him randomly throw on the Superman uniform just on a lark. But anyway, 
another problem? Maybe it's quibbling, but seriously, what the fuck was up with Amish Jorel? And while we're at it, am I the only one who thought Tyrell looked like Lobo's younger brother? Another thing. I'm not crazy about the realistic vibe that the Earth-1 line seems to be shooting for. I don't think it works well for Batman at all. But so far, it's at best a mixed bag for Superman. It makes Superman definitely more unique and awe-inspiring if he's situated in a realistic type of setting, but real-world stories bring real-world problems. Now, to be fair, Earth-1 Volume 2 begins dealing with some of those problems, to a degree. But I'm just not convinced that DC characters belong in a real world. But that's another discussion for another time, I suppose. So, Shane Davis. When I first heard it, he would pencil this book, I wasn't happy. I'd seen his work on other things, and his fixation for drawing Superman to look like Brandon fucking Ralph just never sat right with me. So, you can imagine that his work on Earth-1 was a pleasant surprise in a lot of ways. Maybe the relaxed deadlines are what did it, but Davis seemed to take his time on each page, and it shows. And yes, it helps that Earth-1 Clark doesn't look a damn thing like Brandon Routh. Still, Davis has plenty of room to grow. Sometimes characters just look fucking stiff. I don't know what it is. Clark's probably the worst offender, but all of them at some point or another look like they have spines made of titanium or something. I mean, nobody stands that straight. Although, and this is kind of moving on, although it's not so much a problem in this book, Davis sometimes struggles with keeping the action straight. By which I mean, if you're drawing page two of a comic book and a character is moving from left to right in the first panel on page two, under most circumstances, he should still be moving from left to right in the next panel. And in whichever panel he stops, he should still be positioned on the left side of the panel. It's just the way that hu the human eye expects staging to be done. And... As good as Davis is, he doesn't always remember to do that. There's a bit where Davis draws Clark flying into space. Clark is constantly gazing to the, basically to the right side of the page. In every single one of those panels, he's going up and up and up, and he's constantly facing right. He's positioned on the left, and he kind of moves around a little bit, but that's for artistic effect. But he's constantly facing right. On the next page, when Clark is in orbit, he's still gazing to the right side of the page. That's good staging. On the page before that, though, in one panel, Clark is on the left side of the first panel, and he's just staring over to the right. In the next panel, he's on the right side, staring off to the left. So basically, he's crossing his own field of vision on this page, in these panels. That's bad staging. So like I say, Davis has a ways to go yet, but the point is that he's a solid talent 
has a lot to offer, and I think he'll ultimately hit his full potential. Now, I don't know if it'll be during the run of this series, but I have no doubt that he'll get there. All right, so that's that. I'm going to play some promos, and I'll be right back. Sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> So From Crisis to Crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman, one half month at a time, every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil... You get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. 
I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I've been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is. A crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Rocks. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I, well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com, and from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday... So, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I've got an announcement to make. Moving day is coming. I'm here to confirm that the rumors are all true. Yes, Magnus Media Enterprises Limited is being bought out by Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. Lawyers from both sides are still currently hashing out the finer details, but what this means for my loyal subjects is that Trentus Magnus, Punch's Reality, will soon join up with the Two True Freaks podcast network, which can be found at www.2truefreaks.com That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S For right now, the target launch date is November the 26th, 2013, but you never know if, when, or how things may change. But that's the plan for the moment. As a side note, I'd like to add that this move will not result in any changes in content. Additionally, there are no circumstances where I'll be laid off and the operation of Trentus Magnus Punches Reality be turned over 
the podcasters in India. Everything will proceed as it has been. I'll add additional details as they become available, but I'd like to thank all of you for your support, and I hope you'll continue once we've moved over to the TTF feed. Please watch the Trentus Magnus Facebook page for additional details. Wizard World Austin is upon us. From November 22nd to 24th, 2013, Austin, Texas will be kept that much weirder thanks to con appearances by Stan Lee, Mark Bagley, Neil Adams, Dennis O'Neill, Greg Land, Greg Capullo, Smallville's Erica Durance, William Shatner, Robert Rodriguez, Norman Reedus, Tombstone's Michael Rooker, Bruce Freakin' Campbell, Ralph Macchio, the one from Karate Kid, not the Marvel editor, James Hong, Smallville's James Marsters, Scott Bakula, and shitloads of others. But most importantly of all, His Excellency Trentus Magnus himself will be in attendance with his lovely girlfriend Stacy. Wizard World Austin. Because San Diego is for pussies and hipsters. So I think that's just about the end of that. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at magnus.libson.com. But that's about to change. I'm preparing to move to the Two True Freaks podcast network, and the target launch date for that is November of 2013. You can also find Trentus Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which on Facebook is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, so keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is copyright Magnus Media Enterprises Limited, Wisconsin Falls, California, in association with the Demonzo Corps of Milan, Italy.